The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We're going to be with you guys this evening. If you've got a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Go ahead and put a finger there and then hop all the way back to the very beginning of your scriptures, Genesis chapter 1. If you haven't met before, my name is Tim. I serve as the pastor here at Citizens. Excited to jump into God's word with you. Uh, here's what I want to do. We're going to look at Genesis 1 first for a little bit, and then we're going to hop over to Ephesians 5. And the goal behind that is before we get to the boundaries and restrictions that we're going to see in this passage around sex and sexuality, I want to start by looking at God's original design. So it's going to take us a little bit of time, but I think it's going to be really helpful for us to set up what God had intended and does intend still for sex and sexuality before we jump to uh, the boundaries and restrictions Paul puts in Ephesians 5. So let me pray for us. It's a weighty thing that we're going to dive into tonight and ask the Lord to be with us. God, thank you for the opportunity to gather with your people. And thank you for your word, that it is true, that it is lasting, that it uh, is sharp, and it it cuts like a double-edged sword. But it it cuts in a, a tender way. And your word says that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, will be kind to us tonight. And sex has this way of of pushing shame and guilt over us like almost no other sin. And so I just pray, God, that you, by the power of your spirit, will lower the walls that we want to put up right now, lower the barriers that we want to put up around our hearts and around our lives. God, that you would speak in with kindness, but also with power. Be with us. We love you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 1. Let's hang out here for a minute. We'll start in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, pause there. So up until this point, God has been creating. 
right? If you read through Genesis 1, God creates night and day, sun, moon, stars, land, mountains, animals, all of these different things. But then you get to verse 26, and there's this kind of pinnacle moment in creation where God creates something, or rather someone, that is different than all of the rest. So up until this point, he's creating all of these good things, but then there's something unique. He says here in verse 26, let us, which is a reference to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us make man in our image. So he creates them, creates them male and female. We'll talk about that a ton next week. But then he gives them this very first and important command in verse 28. He says, be fruitful and multiply. God's first command that he gives to humanity is to go make some babies. Now, be fruitful and multiply is certainly much more than just have children, but it's not less than have children. God wants the earth, what he just created, to be filled with lots of people that image him and mirror him so that he gets the glory spread out across his creation. But notice, God doesn't just do it automatically. He doesn't just say, hey, I'm just going to fill the earth with a bunch of humans that are just like you guys. I'm just going to spread them all out. He gives this task to the first man and the first woman, and he gives them, he could have given them a number of different means, but he chooses to give them the means by which they will be fruitful and multiply, that is sex. First thing we see in Genesis 1 is that God is the creator of sex. He gives it as a gift to Adam and Eve with one of the goals being procreation. Skip down a little bit more, Genesis 2, 23. Moses, the author of Genesis, is going to revisit what's happening here in this creation account. He talks about how Adam, how God creates all things. It's good except for one thing, and that's that Adam is alone. So he makes Adam fall asleep. He takes a rib. He uses the rib to create Eve. Adam wakes up, sees Eve, and this is what he says in Genesis 2, 23. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So there's this beautiful, epic kind of Hebrew love poem over this new creation of God. Adam falls asleep. A rib gets taken out by God. He creates Eve. Adam wakes up and is like, whoa, this, this person is like me. Everything else is not like me. This person is like me. And he just can't stop gushing. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And then look at what we have in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here we see more of God's design for sex. We already said he created it, that it's a gift given to humans for procreation, but then we see two more aspects. The first is that he immediately institutes the first marriage in history. Right? He doesn't say a man and a woman. He says a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. God gives sex within the confines of a marriage between a husband and a wife. And then in verse 25, we read about intimacy. They're both naked and not ashamed. So sex is not just designed for procreation, but also for intimacy, for an acting out of this new one flesh that God has designed. Then we get to the fall. Right? God tells Adam and Eve, hey, don't eat from this tree in the middle of the garden, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you read the story, you know what happens. The devil comes in the form of a serpent. He tempts them. They eat from the tree. And then this is what happens as a result. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So sin enters the world. It corrupts everything, including sex. Where they used to be naked and unashamed with oneness, now they're divided. Their relationship with God is broken, but also their relationship with each other 
is broken. So here we have Genesis 3, three chapters in the Bible, and already we see that God has a good design for sex, that he's the creator and the giver of it. It's a gift from him, that it's meant for procreation, for filling the earth, and for intimacy between a husband and a wife. Two people through the covenant of marriage, giving themselves away to one another, but then also that it's been corrupted and distorted by sin. Three chapters, three deep truths. That's our foundation. A gift from God given for procreation and intimacy between a husband and a wife, and yet distorted and corrupted by sin. So with that, let's head over to Ephesians chapter 5. With that as our baseline, let's see these instructions that Paul gives to the church at Ephesus. We're going to start in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul starts this book like he starts the rest of the book, right? Hey, first, before we get to more commands, I need you to remember one more time that God loves you, that you're a dearly beloved child of God, that Christ has died for you, that he's sacrificed for you, that he's given himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice for you. And now in light of that, you are called to walk in love. Paul always grounds his commands in first the reality of what Christ has done. Christ loves you. He's died for you. Now in response, walk in love. Love, this posture of giving yourself away. Love is this posture of what can I do to bless you and to serve you. Love is this posture of your needs, your desires, your wants over my needs and my desires and my wants. And he's going to use that to contrast to something else. Verse 3. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us. And he says, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Paul uses three different terms here to describe the opposite of self-giving love that believers are called to in sex. Two of the terms, sexual immorality and impurity, are two words that often go together in the Bible. So together, these two words describe any sexual interaction with someone that you're not married to. So if it's sexual in nature, and it's not someone that you're married in a marriage covenant with, that's included in sexual immorality and impurity. But then he uses a really interesting word. He says covetousness. Now, covetousness throughout the Bible is used to describe wanting something that you're not supposed to have, wanting something that isn't or shouldn't be yours. And Paul's including it in the list to describe any sexual thoughts or desires towards someone you're not married to. Any sexual or objectifying thoughts, whether it's towards a person you know, a random person out in public, or via things like porn or fantasy. So for simplicity's sake, we're going to refer to these ideas, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness for the rest of the sermon collectively as the idea of lust. Here's how we would define lust. Lust is a disordered desire for or expression of sexual pleasure. Lust is a disordered desire for or expression of sexual pleasure. It can be disordered in the who directed at someone who you are not in a marriage covenant with. It can be disordered in the why. Right, a self-seeking desire opposite of the self-sacrificing love of God's design. And Paul's going to set these two things up against each other. He says you have two options, love via sacrifice or lust via self-seeking gratification. Those are the two things that's happening here in one through three. This is how Pastor Tim Keller says it. I think it's really helpful. He says, lust says, what can you do for me? Love says, what can I do for you? In God's design, 
as the creator and author of sex, sex was meant to be a physical act of self-giving. One flesh, naked and unashamed, giving all of yourself to another person. This is why over and over and over again, the Bible explicitly says that sex has to happen or should happen within the boundaries of Christian marriage. This relationship that God gives to his people that we're going to read about next week as a picture of the gospel. This this relationship that God gives as a gift where it's no longer you and me, but now us, where two people fully give all of their lives to one another. And sex is a part of and a representation of that. This all of me giving myself to all of you, if I can steal the lyrics from a famous song. I think Keller continues so perfectly here. He says, the modern world sees sex as a commodity to be consumed. Enjoyed in relationships conducted contingently on a profitable cost-benefit relationship. But marriage requires mutual self-sacrifice, the giving up of independence for the deeper joy of interdependence. Now, we'll do a quick tangent. Some of you guys might be having some issue with this line of thinking. Maybe you would say, all right, but my boyfriend and I, like this, this doesn't describe us. Like we're not taking from each other when we have sex. We love each other. And to that, I think Paul, based on 1 Corinthians 7, would say, great, then you should get married. And if your response is, yeah, well, we're just not ready for that yet. And the Bible would say, well, then you're not ready for the all of me giving myself to all of you that marriage requires. This is the relationship designed for sex. To put it another way, within the Christian worldview, sex was meant to be doing with your body what you're already doing with your life, giving yourself fully to another person. Sex is intended to be consistent with all other parts of the relationship, that all of me belongs to all of you. And Paul says lust is anti that. It's anti this all of me giving myself away. So he continues, keeps going in verse 3. He says sexual morality, all impurity or covetousness, and then he kind of doubles down, pushes even further, must not even be named among you. Must not even be named among you. Paul's getting at here is the idea of association. Right? He's saying, hey, church at Ephesus, believers, followers of Jesus, and anything to do with lust and sexual morality shouldn't even be in the same paragraph, let alone the same page, let alone the same chapter, let alone the same book. Other translations talk about this, and they say it as there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Lindsay and I, uh, when we got married, worked with college students at the University of Louisville, and it was a great time getting to uh, shepherd them and teach them about Jesus. And one of the questions that you get a lot when you're in ministry with 18 to 21-year-olds is when it comes to dating is this question, how far is too far? I get that question all of the time. It's like, oh, it's a Tuesday morning. How far is too far? It's 9 a.m. Just trying to drink coffee. And some of that is good, right? Some of that's a good desire, right? Hey, I really want to follow Jesus. I really want to know how to honor him with my body. It's a good thing. But other times, what's really asking there? Hey, what's the edge? What's the line? How far can I go? What's the edge? And, and Paul would say here, hey, the edge is a hint. I don't know how much a hint is. It sounds kind of like a pinch. You know when a recipe calls for a pinch? It's like, I don't know how much a pinch is. I just know it's not a lot. Paul says not even a hint, not even, not even named among you, not even associated together. The, the wrong question to be asking in that moment is how far is too far? The right question is, hey, what's a hint and how do I glorify God and stay as far away from all of that as possible? Paul says not even a hint. And then he continues on with something I think is really fascinating. He says, May not, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. We pause here real quick for a moment. If you're new to this whole Christianity thing, and you just came because a friend invited you, or you're just like, hey, this is a new church plant, that sounds great, I was just walking by. Anyway, if you're just exploring Jesus, whatever you may be, if you're not a follower of Christ, this may be confirming every stereotype you had about Christianity. 
You might be thinking, really? You invited me to the sex sermon? What kind of friend are you? But I want you to notice, look at what he says. Look at who he's talking to. He says, the saints. The New Testament has this word for the followers of Jesus. So Paul's assumption isn't that everyone in the world would abide by this sexual ethic. His assumption is that followers of Jesus would abide by this sexual ethic, and that's different. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I really genuinely mean it when I say I hope our church is a safe place for you. You can ask questions. You can wrestle with who Jesus is and what that means for your life. But I also want you to know that we would expect Paul's instructions here to be a little bit strange to be a little bit unnecessary, to seem a little bit weird and overbearing because you're missing the most important piece of the puzzle, who Jesus is and why he would ask something like this of you. As you consider, hey, what is this call to surrender to Christ? What is the good news of the gospel? Even when it comes to my sexual desires, I would encourage you to take a step back and to realize that what Christianity teaches is that Christ asks us to surrender everything to him, including our sexual lives, but first and foremost as a response to the fact that he first sacrificed for us that he was the fragrant offering, that he went first in laying down his life. And so we can respond joyfully and gladly and even with a little bit of frustration because Christ went to the cross. So we can respond in joy as we give up our lives for he who gave up his life for us. All right, hop back in, verse four. Paul's gonna push even farther. It's fascinating, when you read the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, these writers, they don't let up on the sexual ethic, they push in even more. Verse four, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. So Paul says, not just in how you gauge, engage in sex, but also how you talk about sex. He says you shouldn't engage in sex in a cheap way, you also shouldn't talk about sex in a cheap way. Let me give you a word of caution that I think our church in particular needs to hear when it comes to this foolish talking, crude joking, talking about sex in a way that cheapens it. I'm more worried, not about the way that you talk about it, but by the way that the media that you consume talks about it. That sitcom, that song, ah, but it's a good song, that beat. This becomes really funny and everyone's watching. Oh, but that show, they're doing a watch party. I got to go watch that show. And I'm worried that as we consume these things, just saying, yeah, but it's a funny show. Yeah, but it's a good song. Yeah, this or that, that we're not realizing how it's actually rewiring our brains to think about sex in a cheap anti-God's design. I heard a story this week about a, a woman who's not a part of our church, but she uh, was trying to follow Jesus, and she was telling this other lady in her church, she said, hey, I've just had to realize for me, I just can't watch New Girl. Now, New Girl's a funny show, all right? Coach, I'm in on Coach, all right? But for her, it was like, hey, every time I watch this show, it just feels like every other episode is about hookup culture, and that's just not doing good things for my heart or for my soul, for how I view sex. And so for her, she's like, I just can't watch it. Listen, that's not legalism. That's gospel. That's not legalism going, oh, Tim's telling me I can't listen to this song that everybody listens to. I can't listen to that. I can't watch. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, what does Christ call you to? And ask the question, how is this actually making me go against what God has designed for sex? I think that's beautiful. He says, no foolish talk, no coarse joking, no crudeness, no filthiness. But then look at what he says. He says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, it's interesting to me. I would expect Paul to say self-control, right? Don't practice sexual immorality, no crude joking. Instead, let there be self-control. But he doesn't say that. He says, let there be thanksgiving. And here's why I think that is. Thanksgiving or gratitude is a key to the fight against lust. Gratitude is a key to the fight against lust. Why? Because lust is driven by discontentment, pushing us to want more and more and more. 
Paul says gratitude is the key to push back against that as you give God thanks, whether you're single or married, for what God has given you, for who he is and what he has done for you in the cross of Jesus. You're stopped from having to reach for more and more fulfillment from this area of your life. I was talking to a guy in our church a few weeks ago, and he was sharing about how the Lord's just been giving him some victory recently over sexual sin. And he was just sharing, and it was so encouraging just to hear about how he's seen uh, being able to put some stuff to death that he's been struggling with for a while. And I just asked him, I said, hey man, that's awesome. Like, what's helping? Like, what are you doing that is helping you actually say no to your flesh in this area? And he said a number of things. I mean, all the, the things you would expect that we'll talk about in a minute. I've put some filters on my phone and my computer. I'm, on the, I'm trying to get some accountability in my life. But he said, honestly, one of the biggest and best practices I've learned to do is that every morning I just got to get with God. Like, I just got to get in his word and I have to remind myself that I'm a blood-bought son of God. If I can remember the good news of Jesus for me, then I know throughout the day I got to remind myself I'm a blood-bought son of God. I'm a blood-bought son of God. I'm a blood-bought son of God. Because as I do that, I don't have to run as my heart wants to to all of these other things to give me the fulfillment and the belonging and the place that I'm already promised in Jesus. So I got to fight for this. I got to go to it. Thanksgiving is this tool that he has learned to say, no, I'm grateful every morning when I wake up. I got to get with God and be grateful so I can push against the discontentment that drives me to lust. Verse 5, he keeps going. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I want to say something really strongly in love, and then I'll back it down just a little bit. If you are living in habitual and unrepentant sexual sin, if you're settled in it, if you're not fighting, if you don't care, the Bible would give you good reason to believe that you may not actually know and follow Jesus. I'm not saying that to elevate sexual sin above all the other sins. All right, Paul elsewhere gives similar lists where he says these people, they might not be included in the kingdom of God either. He says this about envy, He says it about greed. He says it about drunkenness. I'm also not saying that if you struggle with these things, even to the point of addiction, that you're not a follower of Jesus. But there's a difference between struggling with and being settled in. There's a difference between I'm fighting this, I'm clawing tooth and nail, and just being settled in. This is who I am. This is how it is. I don't care. Whatever. Listen, if you can't seem to stop sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, but you're living together, you don't have any boundaries, you're at their apartment till 1 a.m., just the two of you, you're not struggling with, you're settled in. Listen, if you just can't stop looking at porn, and you have no filter on your computer or phone, you never confessed it to brothers or sisters in Christ who love you, you've never gotten rid of social media, even though you know it's triggering for you, you're not struggling with, you're settled in. The Bible doesn't play around with this. This is a big deal to God. Sin as a whole and sexual sin is a big deal to God. Paul continues, verse 6. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. This is when it comes to sexual sin, let no one deceive you. Not the world, not your boyfriend or girlfriend, not your fiance, not your friends, not yourself. Because the world is going to try to deceive you. They're going to tell you that the biblical sexual ethic created by God, given as a gift to husbands and wives for procreation and intimacy within the confines of marriage, they're going to say that that's not just wrong, but it's repulsive, that it's oppressive, that it's harmful. 
This is true today. This was true in the city of Ephesus. Their number one god or goddess was Artemis. People would worship Artemis because they believed she falsely promised them that they would have more sexual fulfillment and fertile, and they would be fertile. It's nothing new under the sun. The world's going to tell you this is wrong. Your sin nature is going to tell you this is no big deal. It's your body. Do what you want. It's natural. Yeah, but we really like each other. Yeah, but we're like moving towards marriage anyway. Listen, there's no shortage of internal or external justifications when it comes to sexual sin. And I think the biggest lie that is being screamed at us right now is this. Why would anyone have the right to tell you to deny yourself and what you want? It's everywhere. This is natural. It's feelings that you have. Why would anybody, that's, why would anybody tell you to get in the way of what you want? Why would anyone tell you to deny yourself? Just if I can remind you what we just sang about, self-denial is what Christianity is about. It's the call of a follower of Jesus to deny yourself, to live to God. Self-denial is what it means to be a Christian because our Savior lived a life of self-denial, right? Who for the joy set before him went to the cross. And so we follow him to the cross where we learn to die to ourselves. And listen, it's not repressive to entrust ourselves to the one who created us and created sex, right? If you create something, you know how it's designed to work. Right? So if Genesis 1 through 3 is true and God is the author and creator and giver of this gift called sex, then he knows how it's supposed to work. It's not harmful to commit yourself to that, to entrust yourself to him. Listen, 14 years ago, if you met a guy named Steve Jobs and you said, hey, Steve, what's up, man? What you inventing? What's the latest at Apple? And he said, hey, I got a great invention for you. It's called the iPhone. You said, that's awesome, Steve. Tell me about it. And Steve said, here's the iPhone. You plug it in. You connect it. There's apps you download on. This is an iPhone. There's apps you download on the store. You plug it in. You get like your cell phone carrier, Verizon, Sprint, whoever you have. You plug it up. You call it, all that kind of stuff. One day, this thing is going to be in everyone's pocket. It's going to take over your life. It's a joke. He says, this is the iPhone. It's great. Awesome. This is what you should do with it. But here's the thing. iPhones are very, very fragile. Here's why they're fragile. Because we want you to break it and buy another one. But I'm not going to tell you that. But it's very fragile, so you got to take care of it. And you said, Steve, I love you, man. This is a great invention, but that's kind of harmful for you to tell me that's how I have to use this. Like, that's a little bit, like, are you, I know you created the iPhone. I know, like, you think how it's designed to work, but, like, that's pretty repressive and oppressive to tell me what to do with my iPhone. I think it's better as a drink coaster. I'm going to use it as a drink coaster. Listen, the creator of something knows how the thing is supposed to be used. Right? And if God is the creator of sex, if he's the giver of sex, if he's the one who knows all things, controls all things, gives good gifts to his children, you can trust him with this. Single and married, you can trust him with this. Let's keep rolling. He says this, he finishes out verse 6, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul keeps pushing. He says, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God's design for sex is too perfect, and the disordering of that is too destructive for him to be okay with us doing whatever we want. It's a big deal to God. All right, let me summarize it for us, then we'll turn to some application. Sex is a gift from God. He gave it within the confines of marriage to a husband and a wife for intimacy and for procreation. Second, sex has been, or sin has broken that gift. Now, instead of self-sacrificing love, we're pulled and tempted towards self-seeking lust. And the call for the believer is to put this away. Not even a hint, not in how we practice or in how we talk about it. But here's the deal. You and I both know, through our lived experience in the world, that sexual sin and temptation towards lust is no joke. It's just not. 
It's tough. It beats us up. It feels like maybe more than any other sin, this unescapable thing that just has a hold on our hearts. So I want to give us some application. I want to give us some ways to fight against our lust. But here's the deal. I also know that if you struggle with lust, you've heard these before. If you wrestle with sexual sin, as I think we all do, you've heard these before. And so here's the deal. I'm going to throw them out, and they're going to be good reminders. And then we're going to pray at the end and just ask the Holy Spirit to change us. Let me give us a couple ways to fight against lust. Number one, flee. Flee. Paul continues, Ephesians 5, verse 7. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And then he says in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Paul says, do not become partners. It means don't partake, don't join in, don't believe the lie that, well, everybody else is doing it. Everyone else that I work with, everyone else that I go to school with, everyone else that I interact with, they're all doing it. Paul says, no, do not become partners. Do not become partakers with them. I love the way that he says it in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. It's such a, a short, powerful phrase. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Lust is the only sin in the Bible we're told explicitly to run from. To not try to stay, to not try to fight it, to not fool ourselves into thinking, I know this is going to be really tempting, but I'm really strong and the Spirit's with me. I'm just going to beat it. No. Paul says, run, flee, get out of there. Take it seriously enough to do some serious and drastic measures. So maybe for some of you, a next step tonight is that you've been battling and you've been fighting against your sin. And you've been fighting against your porn addiction. You've been fighting against uh, going after this with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, whatever it may be. And maybe for you, that next step is to ratchet up the fight. To say, hey, this next step for me to flee is I got to get rid of my smartphone. I got to get some filters on it. I got to get off social media. I got to put some blockers on. Maybe for you, the next step in fleeing is to break up with that boyfriend or girlfriend that you know you guys actually can't fight this together. That you know is crushing you, that you know is leading you towards temptation. Let me say another hard thing in love. Uh, single dating engaged folks in the, in the room. <sighs> Marriage won't fix your porn problem. It just won't. And I know that you're like, okay, cool, married guy. Just won't. I can say that from personal experience in my own life. I can say that in experience from walking with dudes for years and years. It won't fix it. I know that you think, yeah, I know you're saying that, but like for me, it's going to be different. It's not. It's not. It's not going to fix your porn problem. Start killing it now. Start learning to flee from it now. And I love, I love verse 8. Don't miss why he says we do this. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Listen, the command to flee from lust is not simply about behavior modification. It's to learn to live in light of what is already true about you. Everything we've been saying in Ephesians 1 and all of the book of Ephesians, right? Paul grounds it in, hey, the reason why you shouldn't partake in sexual immorality and foolish talk and all of these things, no, not even a hint, is because you are no longer a child of darkness, you're a child of the light. You've been blood, you've been bought by the blood of Jesus. So you don't get this. You don't just run from sexual sin. You run towards your identity in Christ. You don't just flee away from the bad. You flee towards your Savior. You run to Jesus. St. Augustine, 1,600 years ago in the fourth century, he was a sexual addict before he became a Christian, then turned into one of these awesome early church theologians. This is what he said. He said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in me. Listen, Running from your sin is not going to be enough. 
get to run to something much sweeter, much more greater, much more beautiful, much more fulfilling than the lust that you're chasing after for those things, namely Jesus who loves you, who died for you, who cares for you. Number one, flee. Number two, confess. Confess. Verse eight. For one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There are few sins that make us want to hide more than sexual sin. Few things that bring more shame, bring more guilt, bring more wanting to go back into the darkness. And the invitation of Paul here is to say, hey, wake up, O sleeper, bring it to the light. Confess it. Confess it to God. Confess it to your Christian community. Here's the deal. If you're in the room right now and you have hidden sexual sin, you have stuff that you've never told anybody, you've never confessed, whether it be to your spouse, whether it be to a roommate, whether it be to your community group, whether it be to God, here's two things that I know about you. And I know them because of the Bible. I know them because of my own life. First, I know you feel isolated from others. I know that you feel like, they only love me because they don't know the true me. They only love me because they don't see those dark places. If they, if they knew that thing, if they knew that I struggled with that thing, if they knew that I did that thing, then they would, they would reject me. Second, I'll, I also know that you're isolated from God. I'm not saying isolated eternally, like your eternal adoption. I'm saying isolated from his presence and communion with him. Whether you feel it or not, because First John says in, that in God there is no darkness at all. Here's what I'm telling you, and what Paul's inviting you into in Ephesians 5, is that both of those things, your isolation from others and your isolation from God, can be over with today. They just can it can be over with. You don't have to put on the mask anymore. You don't have to hide in front of others. You don't have to hide in front of God. Yeah, 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 it's all good. I don't struggle. That's not me. You can confess it. You can bring it into the light. You don't have to hide anymore. And here's what I promise you will find because I know our church and I know our Savior. First thing you're going to find is you're going to find a community of people who are going to love you. Who are probably going to have some amount of response that says, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, I'm still there. Yeah, hey, I'm struggling with that too. Hey, I struggled with that. Hey, can we pray for you? Can we remind you of the gospel? Can we walk alongside of you in this? You're gonna hear some amount of, hey, we love you and Christ loves you. Let's journey in this together. Thank you so much for sharing. But even better than the love of community, you're gonna find the love of a savior. Who went to the cross for not only your sexual sin, but also your shame and guilt that comes from your sexual sin. Who died for you, shed his blood for you, who sacrificed for you. And what you're not going to find is, oh, that, you did that, mm, that's too bad. Uh, that, that thing, like I died for all these sins, but like that one, mm. you're not going to find that. At the foot of the cross, you're going to find forgiveness and welcome. A God who in Christ is not going to say, oh yeah, you're, like, you're welcomed in, but like, you're one of those like, tainted by sexual sin ones. No, he's going to say, you're washed clean. You're redeemed. You're made new. You're forgiven. I now view you in Christ as I view my son, holy, righteous, pure, spotless. And here's the thing. If you're hidden in sexual sin right now, that's going to be the hardest thing for you to believe. You're going to want to say, yeah, like those things are true, but there's still this part of me that like God's still going to see me as like this thing. It's not true. In the gospel, it's not true. It's not true. He sees you as clean, pure, holy, righteous through the blood of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel 
Number three, last one. View sex biblically. View sex biblically. I skipped something, and it's too important to, to keep moving on. So just ignore it. We'll come back to number three. Uh, real quick, real quick word on confess. I just need to say it. I messed up, and I need to say it. Uh, married couples in the room. Number one, you need to confess to your spouse. You just need to. I know you think that you're keeping them from a world of hurt. You're not. It's going to hurt them. But you're preventing intimacy. You're preventing y'all walking and following Jesus together. If you have hidden sexual sin from your spouse, you need to confess it. You're not loving them by hiding it. Here's the other thing to married couples in the room. If you're struggling with sexual intimacy with your spouse, if you're, if you're struggling, if it's whatever that, that struggle may look like for you, whatever the brokenness may look like for you, I want to invite you also to, to bring some Christian couples that you love around you to confess it to them. Say, hey, this is just off in our relationship. Like for, for whatever it may be, sin has just kind of broken this and we're trying to figure out how to step into it. Will you bring some Christian couples that love you and love Jesus into that conversation so they can pray for you? It can remind you of the good news of the gospel. Listen, this whole sex thing isn't off limits. If we can't talk about this in the church, where are we going to talk about it? Where are going to talk about it? With your non-Christian friends, don't do that. It's not going to go well. Bring it into the light. With wisdom, obviously. With honesty. All right, number three, view sex biblically. I want all of us to, view, to elevate our view of sex. So too often throughout church history... In response to the world saying, sex is God, sex is everything, go after sex, the church has said, hey, it's not God, it's gross. Sex is bad, don't do that, bad, off limits until this day you get married and then it's, yay! Here's the deal, I want all of us, married and single in the room, to realize sex is good. It's a good gift. And you don't fight sex as a married couple, you don't fight against sexual immorality as a married couple, or as a single, or as an engaged, or as a dating, or wherever you are. You don't fight against it by lowering your view of sex, you fight against it by elevating your view of sex. By saying, this is too precious. This is too good. It has an author and designer that is too great for me to just say, oh, whatever. I'm, uh, that's bad. I'm going to run away from it because it's bad. No, I'm going I'm to run away from it because it's good. And its design is good and it's better and it's more fulfilling and it's more wonderful and it's more beautiful. And so I'm going to run towards that instead. The goodness of it. To elevate our view of sex. We need to elevate the way we talk about sex and marriage and singleness in the church. Elevate it. That's the three. Flee, confess, View sex biblically. Here's where I want to land. Let's, let's close it up. A lot of ground to cover. I had two goals, two main goals for us, and here's how I want to kind of end. Two goals for us. For some of us in the room, as we kind of head off towards prayer and worship and response this week, I want some of us to take our sexual sin more seriously. Some of you guys know, and you've been fighting it for years, and you know that next step to ratchet up the fight, to ratchet up the fleeing, to ratchet up the putting it to death. You know you need to confess it, and you've been fighting it for months or for days or for weeks or for years, and you refuse to confess it. Some of us, I, I need us, I want us, I pray for us that we would take our sexual sin more seriously, that it's a big deal to God, like all sin is. Now, for others of us, and for all of us, really, I want us to take the gospel more seriously. Some of us, we need to take the gospel more seriously, and that needs to lead us to fighting our sin harder and stronger and to flee. For some of us, we need to take the gospel more seriously and fight against our shame and our guilt that just surrounds us when it comes to this. You need to actually pray and believe the good news of the gospel on your behalf, to actually believe for you that Jesus died, that because of the cross, Christ, God doesn't view you as sinful. If you're in Christ, he doesn't view you as messed up, tainted, like a little bit washed. You need to believe that in the cross, Christ doesn't define you by what you've done or by what you haven't done. 
He doesn't define you what you've looked at or what you haven't looked at. He doesn't define you by your fantasies. He doesn't define you by your actions. He doesn't define you by your impurity. He defines you by the good news of Jesus, by his holiness, by his righteousness, by his goodness. God actually sees you as he sees Christ, righteous, not righteous but full of sexual sin, not Christian but barely getting by, righteous, clean, forgiven, made new. Let me pray for us, and I'll give us some ways we're going to respond. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for Ephesians 5. God, thank you for Genesis 1-3. through God, thank you for the fact that you are the author and giver of something like sex. It's a good gift from you. God, I pray that all of us will elevate our view of it. We wouldn't see it as this bad thing we run from, but rather this gift from you that in the proper context and the proper boundaries and the proper um, relationship of marriage between a husband and a wife, that it's a good gift from you. And I pray for some of us tonight that you would lower the walls and the defenses and the justifications that we have about our sexual sin, that it's no big deal, that it's not a thing, that you'll fight against it. Whatever those justifications may be, God, would you push against those? Would you help us to say no to sin and yes to you, that you would help us take that next step that we know you're, by your spirit, are convicting us to take, we're just unwilling to take. Help us to step out in courage and faith. God, I pray for, for some of us tonight that we would confess our sexual sin for the first time. And you would give us gospel freedom to actually declare, hey, this is what I've done. And I know in the gospel I'm not defined by this, but I gotta share it because in the light there's freedom. And the light is where Christ is. And the light is where God is. And I wanna be in the light. I wanna walk in freedom. That I know that First John says that we confess that he is faithful and just to forgive. Help us. We need your help in this area. God, help us be a church that doesn't shy away from these tough conversations. And freak out and get all weird, God, but that presses into holiness together as a church. We love you, pray like this in Jesus' name. Amen.